1: Today is Friday, October 20th, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. On our podcast today, we will be speaking with Dr. Saraswati Dayal and Dr. Edwin Deitch. We will be discussing an article recently published in the September issue of Critical Care Medicine entitled, Intensive Care Unit Management of the Trauma Patient, and this is a continuing medical education article. The reference is Critical Care Medicine 2006, Volume 34, pages 2294 to 2301, and uh, as by way of introduction, Dr. Deitch is Professor and Chair, Department of Surgery, New Jersey Medical School, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey in Newark, and Dr. Dial is a Trauma Critical Care Surgeon at Hackensack University Medical Center in Westwood, New Jersey. Thank you both for joining us today on the podcast.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: Um, uh, As we discussed previously, I I really, really like this article. I found it incredibly informative and and very well-structured. And uh, just to put some structure for the listeners about what we're going to discuss today, uh, in this article you chose to pick sort of four major important areas, uh, and and to quote from your article, uh, head injury, uh, hemorrhage control, resuscitation and the staged treatment of multiple injuries. And to just get right into it, I thought we'd begin, uh, as you do in your article, with the resuscitory phase. And you talked about two areas that uh, I find very interesting, and if you could shed a little bit more light on it, that would be great, in terms of hypertonic saline in the early resuscitory phase, as well as uh, you make uh, mention of the abdominal compartment syndrome.
2: Okay, I'll start, and then I'll ask Dr. Dial to, to jump in. Uh, basically the trauma patient's a little different than the traditional ICU patient in that the intensive care begins in the field with resuscitation and any lack of adequate resuscitation in the field or in the emergency area uh, can translate into organ injury and severe metabolic disorder later on during the ICU course. So one of the um, major areas of investigation is how to improve the initial resuscitation of the trauma patient. One option is the use of low-dose hypertonic saline as an initial resuscitative fluid, either in the ED or in the field. Uh, There's several advantages to hypertonic saline. Uh, One is that a small volume, such as 250 cc's of fluid, has the intravascular expansion capability of several liters of normal saline or ringers lactate. For this reason, during uh, transport times over very rapid periods, it's easy to give a significant amount of uh, fluid that will maintain the intravascular space. Perhaps a little more important even is the fact that there's increasing experimental evidence that hypotonic saline has some very good and profound immunomodulatory effects. It seems to limit the um, hyperinflammatory response of neutrophils and other inflammatory cells that may ultimately decrease uh, cytokine mediated or neutrophil mediated injury. In fact, the Army is very interested in using hypertonic saline in far forward uh, places with the idea that it can both fluid resuscitate and limit the development of organ failure. Several days later,
1: Uh, along those lines, I had a question as as somebody who works in a surgical ICU but not a trauma ICU. How far along is uh, in your article? You say seven point five percent saline. How far along is that in terms of in an average trauma unit? Is it only in clinical trials, or is it being used routinely in some places?
2: I, I think that that it's sort of being used anecdotally. There have been two or three prospective randomized trials. Um, in the field. There have been several in um, in individual units, and there's been a meta-analysis that's been done. And basically, hypertonic saline, when it does show an effect that it's difficult to show one with small numbers of patients, it's been shown to be beneficial in those people with penetrating injuries, uh, abdominal injuries, where blood loss is ongoing rapidly. In that situation, it seemed to have statistically reduced the mortality rate, but that's a post-hoc analysis And this the, of, a, of a large number of studies.
1: So this would be going on primarily, then, I would imagine, in the emergency trauma bay, rather than... Correct. Right? Correct. Right. But is it the kind of thing that, that if a clinician decides they want to start using it, that they need to get, uh, I guess, consent? I mean, it's not experimental, right?
2: No, it's not. And, and I think anecdotally, and Dr. Dial can jump in here, too. Anecdotally, we use it yes. on somebody... Who we think may not respond to fluids or somebody where um we're trying to get trying to keep the blood pressure down but yet give them some sort of intravascular volume uh because in the absence of clinical studies showing it's effective, and everybody we're sort of a little bit at a disadvantage in in using it routinely, so there's a handful of patients every year we use it in.
1: Dr. Dial, do you want to make any comments on your experience with it or your thoughts on the topic?
3: Yeah, I'm, I agree with Dr. Dyich and that it's a sort of anecdotal that we don't have clinical trials, but, you know, I've also used it in, at Hackensack in the ICU several times and have seen improvement in patient outcome. Patients with head injury, you don't want to give too much crystalloid resuscitation to, so it allows you to give a small amount of volume um, and at the same time achieve your goals.
1: One of the things you you mentioned in this initial part of your review article was this balance between over- and under-resuscitation and that we all want to prevent organ dysfunction just like any critically ill patient, but the concerns for the development of the abdominal compartment syndrome. We did an interview uh, with Michael Cheatham about this, but uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the role of this or or the, the problem of developing this in the trauma patient.
2: You know, as surgeons, we sort of believe if a little is good, more is better and the surgical history has been of one of if you're going to give a little fluid, give a lot of fluid, and you should never be faulted for under-resuscitation. This is in contrast to many ICUs where you're dealing with people with medical problems such as MIs or people who are at higher risk of heart failure. This whole concept of the little is good, more is better has been disproven. Like many dogmas, it turns out that it's true in a certain number of patients but there's a real downside. And the downside is tissue edema and the abdominal compartment syndrome. And I'm sure that in the previous podcast it was it was articulated that that this is really a mechanical cause of multiple organ failure and it's one that's 100% treatable with a laparotomy and then the late abdominal closure. So as one begins to approach fluids, the concept that we should make sure this person is really well resuscitated is now shifted to when we want to make sure they're adequately resuscitated because we know that over-resuscitation can, uh, by causing lung edema, make arts worse, by causing bowel edema, cause of abdominal compartment syndrome. And, in fact, we've even seen two people who develop blindness because of edema uh, causing compression of the optic nerves. So at this point, we're starting to use more criteria related to uh... cvp uh... Um, mixed venous o2 saturation normalizing rather than just pushing the fluids feeling that there's uh... no downside
1: and from what i understand you the threshold to keep the belly open to try and prevent it is becoming lower is that correct
2: that that, that, that that's right whenever one has to uh... work hard to make the two edges meet one stops so the no- notion is that it's better to have an open abdomen than a tight closure.
1: Uh, Dr. Dial, some of your personal experience with this uh, problem?
3: I, In my ICU, we deal with a lot of our general surgery patients as well as trauma patients, and we see it not only in the trauma population, we're also seeing it very commonly in the general surgery patient who, let's say, for example, bleeds in the operating room, so gets excessive resuscitation, develops edema and develops it post-op in the ICU. It's uh, really life saving if you can just reopen that abdomen and see uh tissue perfusion, return of urine output, um, drop in the peak AA pressures.
1: One of the, uh, the next topic that I wanted to ask your opinion on, uh, because it's a fairly dynamic area, is this issue of blood substitutes, and you mentioned it. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we recently had a patient, a Jehovah's Witness, where this issue came up, and reviewing the literature is, is somewhat disheartening, but also a little bit complex. So uh, if you could touch on some of the points that you make here, that would be great.
2: Basically, I've had interest in, in, in limitation of blood use for a long time. And in the nineteen forties there were human studies done that showed that in a normal individual, uh, one does not even begin to increase the cardiac output significantly unless the hemoglobin gets above seventy excuse me, the hemoglobin gets below seven grams per deciliter. In the nineteen seventies there were studies done where there is no significant increase in cardiac work In anesthetized patients whose hemoglobins are greater than, uh, excuse me, less, yeah, greater than uh, six grams per deciliter, there's also a tremendous amount of uh, studies, both prospective and case control, in Jehovah's Witnesses, showing that uh, a threshold of five grams per deciliter seems to be the number uh, below which there is a much higher incidence of both mortality and morbidity. So that's sort of a background saying that one does not have to resuscitate the standard numbers. Second concept that was recognized is that blood transfusions cause a profound number of changes, and in fact, in trauma patients, one can correlate mortality to the amount of blood that's transfused. Mechanisms seem to be due to a bunch of inflammatory factors that are produced when the blood's in storage and that these uh, factors tend to make multiple organ failure worse. The third concept is recent studies with some of the newer hemoglobin substitutes showing that they can be used and do not have the adverse consequences of the older substitutes. Uh, The older substitutes tended to bind nitric oxide, and therefore they cause profound vasoconstriction. So what we saw clinically was a vasoconstricted hypotensive patient who now's blood pressure may have come up, but, it, but they were not organ resuscitated. So it was like giving a pressure to someone with inadequate intravascular volume. And that was associated with a profound increase in mortality, taking those products off the market. But the latest uh, batch of hemoglobin substitutes uh, seemed to be safe in clinical trials And, in fact, I know that there's a clinical trial right now looking to see if early use of hemoglobin substitutes uh, in the first 24 hours after trauma is associated with improved survival.
1: So let me just uh, follow up just to really keep it simple for the podcast. So right now, today, from what I understand, they are not commercially available yet, certainly for routine use. Is that correct? That's correct. And that, just if you could reiterate that one point that I thought was really great, so that these previous ones actually, it was that they were causing, was it vasodilatory problems you said? Uh, basal constrictive. vasoconstricting. Vasoconstricting. So that was an actual side effect of the products themselves, is that the idea?
2: That, that's right, because several of the products were shown to be good until they went to phase 3 trials. And hemoglobin binds nitric oxide. And therefore, what would happen is that one would get hypertensive. And so, in the trauma patient who may have inadequate volume, when these hemoglobin substitutes were given, because the blood pressure came up, the assumption was that their volume had come up. Right, right. But it was a false assumption.
1: Well, you got to wonder, I mean, did, did any experts like yourself in the field, because of the vasodilatory shock and sepsis, I would imagine that they thought about it, but I guess because they're off the market, they wouldn't be used for it. But that's... Well,
2: I think people thought about it, and that was one of the concerns, and I think that Um, the net effect was that it was still thought that perhaps it wasn't going to be that bad. I wasn't involved in any of those trials. It was hoped that perhaps that, you know, based on how it's given, that it would work, but it didn't.
1: And there were ethical, I remember reading that there were ethical issues too around that because it's often a very difficult time to get consent, et cetera, right?
2: That's right. I mean, you know, personally there's some some things I won't become part of a trial off because I don't think that the biology behind it, fully supports a clinical trial. Many of the preclinical models um, answer a question, but they don't mimic the clinical situation with all its complexities. And I think this is one of those examples where where the preclinical models and the early safety studies didn't fully mimic the complexity of the patient. We know this from the sepsis studies, all the early studies giving these various agents to patients. In the 1980s, there was... a a poor understanding of really what sepsis was, and therefore many of the agents didn't work, and a few of the agents had higher mortality rates than the control groups
1: so So then are you guardedly optimistic about some of these uh, heme substitutes in the future?
2: Well, I'm guardedly optimistic about the most recent one because it doesn't bind nitric oxide, and at least the the studies that have come out in trauma patients, mainly from Denver, uh, seem to show that it works and then the animal trials that have been done seem to be relevant and would support that the biology... Uh, is appropriate to the patient,
1: Doctor Dial. Why don't we uh, let you answer this last uh, thing I wanted to discuss in terms of resuscitation, which is that identifying all significant injuries is a key part of the resuscitory phase. And uh, you know, I'm I'm not a not a surgeon, so maybe if you could go over sort of precisely what happens, why they might be missed, or or things like that, or are they some of them picked up if the patient has to go right to the operating room? If you could take a few minutes, that would be great. Yeah, sure.
3: Uh, patient comes in with. Multiple injuries, and basically in the trauma bay, we look at we try to look at all the injuries, but sometimes we're looking at the ones that are the most life threatening at that time. Such as if the patient has hemorrhage in the abdomen, we take the patient immediately to the operating room and operate on his abdomen, uh, do what we call a damage control laparotomy, subsequently bring him to the ICU. At that time, we may find as we're looking over the patient, as we're uh, improving his coagulopathy, warming him up, we may find that there's um, uh, lower extremity fractures that we did not identify initially. So what we try to do is initially find the most life-threatening ones and do a second survey when we're in the surgical ICU. But other missed injuries maybe be when you're in the operating room, and they have something life-threatening that you're just addressing. That you're trying to control any bowel contamination. You're trying to control the hemorrhage, and you may have not, you may have missed something intraoperatively also, and that may be picked up, and that adds to morbidity of the patient. Um, but that's uh, something that um, you know, we come across a lot.
1: So you sort yeah. of you reformalize your, uh, your your secondary survey, I guess.
3: Yeah, the initial survey. Uh, we, is in the uh, trauma bay when we see the patient and try to address the uh, life-threatening injuries. And then uh, most times we come across all the injuries, but there are times we miss some injuries, and those are picked up in a secondary survey, whether the patient's in the surgical ICU or on the floor.
2: Yeah, I can paraphrase that perhaps a little bit. Okay. The incidence of misinjuries is, is especially high in people who come in in shock, or people who come in with um, inadequate sensorium and need to be intubated. The average trauma patient who comes in, who, who you can speak to, who you can, who one can do a full evaluation, uh, missed injuries are relatively uncommon. But the person who comes in with a major injury, who needs to be intubated in the field or intubated in the emergency room, you, one cannot always get a full history. And the physical examination does not always indicate pain or something that would lead one to suspect an injury. Uh, so, in that circumstance, it's not uncommon if someone rec- re, um, mandates an emergency laparotomy that one may find uh, a dislocation of, of, of a finger. One might even find um, an intracranial hematoma that, that that's relatively small. On the other hand, it's even possible that one can miss a cervical spine injury, which could be catastrophic. So the recognition that there are certain subgroups that are more likely to have missed injuries has resulted in an approach where certain screening tests are done. And if the screening test can't be done, then precautions are taken uh, to avoid any, any consequences if an injury is missed. The most common example is if someone's in blunt trauma and requires emergency laparotomy, they'll be placed in a C-collar or neck brace until their cervical spine can be cleared. In that situation, maybe 1% or 2% will have an injury, but since we can't clear that patient, uh, safety would say that we, we take that approach. So the recognition that certain injuries can be missed leads to policies and procedures where the patient is protected to ensure that, that mis- if there is an injury, that it doesn't have significant consequences or that the consequences can be limited.
1: I thought we'd uh, spend the last, you know, five, ten minutes of the interview allowing you to more formally discuss this uh, very interesting concept of a damage control laparotomy when I was going over it in your paper. It looked like some of the literature was fairly recent, so perhaps if you could sort of paint a picture about w- what the initial trauma eval was like before this, why what led up to it being changed, and what the current approach is, that might be very helpful, and I'll let you two work out the, the order here.
2: In the 1970s, Liver injuries were explored. And patients with massive liver injuries underwent resections of the liver with mortality rates of 30, 50, 70 percent. It became recognized over about 15 to 20 years that just packing a badly injured liver rather than trying to do definitive surgery and repair everything was associated with a much improved survival rate. The mortality rates of some injuries went from 70% to 20%. So by the 1990s, the mindset had come in, in terms of the liver, that uh, doing more at an initial operation in a patient who may not be stable was bad. That is, which is, again, counterintuitive, that doing less could be better in in a patient group. This then uh, got carried on by several trials uh, from a few different trauma groups showing that once the patient got hypothermic or they began to have signs of medical bleeding, coagulopathy, or they got a progressive acidosis, that their mortality rate skyrocketed. And it was recognized that the hypothermia, which is made worse by inadequately resuscitated patient with an open abdomen could be made better by quickly closing the abdomen, bringing the patient to the um, intensive care unit, resuscitating and warming the patient up. So the notion then developed that all that's needed, if you will, in the initial operation of this most severely injured patients is just temporary control. Uh, that means that if there's a major artery that's bleeding, it's fixed. If there's holes in the intestine, they're closed. But it doesn't mean that one would even do an intestinal anastomosis if one had to resect the intestine. That is, that one gets in and tries to limit the entire operative time to under an hour and a half, and putting in packs in to control bleeding from solid organs like the liver or the kidney or the spleen, and, and that was called damage control because the idea is to prevent contamination with feces and to control bleeding from large vessels, then to get the patient warmed up, coagulation better, and then to consider definitive care.
1: And was and this the, the kind last. of thing was this the kind of thing that uh, I'm just thinking as you're, as you're talking here? Uh, it sounds like it would be hard to study in a randomized controlled trial, maybe if you could discuss how, how that was attacked?
2: Well, it, it was attacked by, by, by people basically doing studies looking at, at injury severity score and mortality prior to this, and, and then mortality afterwards. I see the other thing that, that, that sort of works is, is you, one hates to say in my experience, but it, some of these patients it was as dramatic as gravity. You know, you drop a rock, it hits the ground. You drop the rock (laughs) ten times, it hits the ground ten times. You sort of know gravity exists. And there were patients who none of us had ever seen survive before, who were surviving. So it got a lot of play because of the the, the profound obviousness of this clinically. And then when one went and, and looked retrospectively, there were patients of whom survival... I mean getting the patient from the from uh, let me let me phrase it again the patient groups where there were 24-hour survival was less than 10 percent. now we're having 70 or 80 percent of the patients who were surviving uh, longer into their hospital course. So it, it was so dramatic that uh, I don't believe that anybody would, who's, who's tried it would feel ethically justified in doing um, a prospective trial. I guess it's it's fallen into some of those areas, like other procedures, where, like laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which was never done with a prospective trial, the 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 um, the outcome seems to be so obvious that uh, it would be difficult for most people ethically to say that there is clinical equipoise that one could even do do a trial.
1: Dr. Dial, uh, I was wondering if you could share with the listeners, uh, do you ever have a discussion about how much is enough when you're doing one of these damage control laparotomies when when one surgeon may say, okay, let's get out, and another surgeon might say, well, why don't we try and do this first? Or maybe if you could share some anecdotes with that.
3: Um, well, the concept of damage control is to do minimal, and the minimal is what Dr. Dial alluded to, is to control hemorrhage and to uh, control fecal uh, contamination. And yes, you may have discussion back and forth in the operating room, let's also do this. But I think uh, in patient who's uh, hypotensive and with multiple uh, other injuries, I think most trauma surgeons agree that you just do the basics um, and try to get out within 45 minutes to an hour or even less, just control hemorrhage and uh, control fecal contamination close the belly with an IV bag or whatever other closure methods may be used, bring the patient to the ICU, warm the patient and have a planned reoperation, which is safer and easier for the patient um, and which will improve morbidity and mortality.
1: We're probably not going to touch on uh, traumatic brain injury, and and we could do a whole other podcast, or probably two podcasts on that. But one last question that I had for both of you, because we're starting to deal with this in our hospital, and you, you touched on it briefly, and I know there's a bit of a literature there, is this concept of the role of factor 7a, specifically in trauma, and maybe if you could comment on that.
2: Well, I'll ask Dr. Dial to comment she's used it, I know
3: we've used factor 7 in patients with um head injuries. Basically, we use it a lot at my hospital right now. Anybody who comes in with um a large bleed in their head, we have a lot of elderly patients who are on coumadin and other um antiplatelet agents such as uh, Plavix and we um a lot of these patients have to be rushed to the operating room and instead of giving them a lot of FFP, we just give them uh, several doses of factor 7 and it's been um, shown to you know, decrease their bleeding intraoperatively. Uh,
1: but in the general surgical trauma patient, not so much hey, at this in point? General,
2: uh, I'll go to the abdominal trauma part. Um, there is no prospective studies published yet. Um, if we take a look at the notion we talked about before of damage control, the idea is to get out the damage control before this coagulopathy. So
1: you're trying to prevent it, right? To
2: prevent it. Occasionally, one can't do that, that you're there and the bleeding is just so rapid. A caver injury, an aorta caver injury, and you're there, and you have to be there longer than you want to be because tying off the order is a bad thing, and it needs to be fixed. And then you ultimately get this fixed, or one gets this fixed, and next thing you know, everything you touch is oozing, and that's a situation where we've used Factor Seven, and it seems to be, at least, if you look at the patient's bleeding, it seems to work better than fresh frozen plasma. Uh, but one has to make sure there's adequate platelets and a few other things that are right with the coagulation system. But it, it's sort of its biggest role in abdominal surgery, in my mind, is in the individual who's begun to develop a coagulopathy, uh, because the surgery and the injuries mandated one being there longer than one would have liked and can't do a secondary, safer operation.
1: You know, I I hate these podcasts where I could go on for like six hours because this is such a great article, but uh, hopefully the readers will have gotten something out of this and we'll take a look at the the article uh, itself. It was a great article. I loved reading it. We've been speaking today with Dr. Edwin Deitch and Dr. Saraswati Dayal regarding their recently published uh, continuing medical education concise definitive review from Critical Care Medicine entitled Intensive Care Unit Management of the Trauma Patient. Thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us today.
3: Well, thank you
2: for a really good interview.
3: Thank you very much.
1: This concludes our podcast for Friday, October twentieth, two 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Sabell.
0: Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.